imprisoned in the Sudan, beaten by Saudi military police, deported from Libya and Iran, captured and held for a week by Iraqi Republican Guard during the Shiite rebellion following the Gulf War, strafed by Russian MiG-21s in Bosnia, fired upon by Serb snipers, and shelled for days in Sarajevo, with deafening rounds of heavy artillery that threw out thousands of deadly bits of iron fragments. I have seen too much of violent death. I have tasted too much of my own fear. I have painful memories that lie buried and untouched most of the time. It is never easy when they surface. I learned early on that war forms its own culture. The rush of battle is a potent and often lethal addiction. For war is a drug, one I ingested for many years. It is peddled by myth-makers, historians, war correspondents, filmmakers, novelists, and the state, all of whom endow it with qualities it often does possess. Excitement, exoticism, power, chances to rise above our small stations in life, and a bizarre and fantastic universe that has a grotesque and dark beauty. It dominates culture, distorts memory, corrupts language, and infects everything around it, even humor which becomes preoccupied with the grim perversities of smut and death. Fundamental questions about the meaning or meaninglessness of our place on the planet are laid bare when we watch those around us sink to the lowest depths. War exposes the capacity for evil that lurks not far below the surface within all of us. And this is why, for many, war is so hard to discuss once it is over. The enduring attraction of war is this. Even with its destruction and carnage, it can give us what we long for in life. It can give us purpose, meaning, a reason for living. Only when we are in the midst of conflict does the shallowness and vapidness of much of our lives become apparent. Trivia dominates our conversations and increasingly our airwaves. And war is an enticing elixir. It gives us resolve, a cause. It allows us to be noble. And those who have the least meaning in their lives, the impoverished refugees in Gaza, the disenfranchised North African immigrants in France, even the legions of youth who live in the splendid indolence and safety of the industrialized world, are all susceptible to war's appeal. Those who make war do so for many reasons, although many of these motives are never acknowledged publicly. The Palestinian uprising was not just about throwing the Israelis out of Gaza and the West Bank, but also about crushing the urban elite, the shop owners and businessmen in East Jerusalem and Gaza City. The strikes organized by the Shabab, the young men who fueled the uprising from the refugee camps, hurt the Palestinian community far more then they hurt the Israelis. In Bosnia it was the same. The anger turned against a communist hierarchy that kept for itself the privileges and perks of power, even as power slipped from their hands in the decaying state. There is little that angers the disenfranchised more than those who fail to exercise power, yet reap powerful rewards. Despots can be understood, even tolerated, but parasites rarely last long. 
War is a crusade. President George W. Bush is not shy about warning other nations that they stand with the United States in the war on terrorism or will be counted with those that defy us. This, too, is a jihad. Yet we as Americans find ourselves in the dangerous position of going to war, not against a state, but against a phantom. The jihad we have embarked upon is targeting an elusive and protean enemy. The battle we have begun is never-ending, but it may be too late to wind back the heady rhetoric. We have embarked on a campaign as quixotic as the one mounted to destroy us. We go forward, President Bush assures us, to defend freedom and all that is good and just in the world. The patriotic bunting and American flags that proliferated in the wake of the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon were our support for the war mounted against the axis of evil.